which kingdom are you trying to build? Yours or God's? Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. So we'll be in in 1 Kings chapter 19 and 20 tonight. And uh, where we left off was at a pretty high moment. So Elijah has come onto the scene and he has made all kinds of trouble for King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. He he told the people that a drought was going to start and it wasn't going, the rain wasn't going to fall on the land until he said. And so there was a drought for three years in Israel causing a famine. At the end, towards the end of this period, Elijah decides to have a showdown with pagan prophets in Israel because as Ahab married Jezebel, who's Phoenician, and the chief god of the Phoenicians was Baal, and the secondary one is Asherah, they ended up building all of these temples and idols to Baal and Asherah. And so Elijah decides to have this showdown with these prophets, and he tells them to build an altar, cut up a bowl, but not light it on fire. And Elijah's going to do the same thing. And he says, let's see whose God really is God. And God lights Elijah's altar on fire after it's been drenched in water. Nothing happens to Baal's prophets as they dance around and cut themselves and spend hours trying to get Baal's attention and nothing happens. And it's this big victory. The people are just amazed by what goes down, by this spectacle that was created and by what God has done through the prophet Elijah. And then Elijah gathers the prophets of Baal that he was having a showdown with, and he cuts them all down. He kills them all in front of the people, and the people are just just amazed at this spectacle. And so you would think that the following chapter would be a victory lap for Elijah, but that's not what happened. We actually find something very different. It's really great that God doesn't sugarcoat the message, that we actually get to see these people as real people. They're not superhuman. They're not so spiritual that it's completely unattainable to ever be like the great characters in the Bible. We saw that with David, you know, his constant failures. And I can say, I have not done things quite as bad as David has, but David was the greatest king of Israel. 
And so we look at this Elijah. Elijah is the prophet of prophets. He's like the guy when you think of when you think of prophets. And he just had this amazing spectacle happen, this crazy victory. He destroyed prophets of Baal. And then this happens, picking up in chapter 19, verse 1. It said, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had executed all of the prophets with the sword. So Ahab goes home and he tells his wife Jezebel all about this spectacle and this crazy event that went down, how all of the prophets are dead, how God lit an altar on fire after it had been drenched in water multiple times. And I imagine he he was probably overcome with something because he witnessed it and he saw the death of the prophets and he's telling Jezebel all about this. Verse 2, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of them by tomorrow about this time. So Jezebel sends a message to Elijah basically saying, I'm going to do to you what you did to my prophets. So she doesn't back down from her pagan stance. She doesn't learn the lesson from God. Instead, she goes after God's prophet. And when he saw that, so when Elijah saw this letter, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So Elijah actually travels down to the southern kingdom and tries to escape her rule and influence and hides from her, and he's afraid for his life. A guy who just killed 450 prophets who just won a battle on a mountain against them and he did this boldly in front of the king and his men is running from his life because of a letter from the king's wife. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. So he's feeling guilty and just depressed. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So it's really important to understand a couple of things. One, it's clear how depressed he is because he doesn't even move from the tree. He just goes back to sleep and soaks up the time there. He's a beaten man and who's afraid for his life. The second thing is who is encouraging him? Because the language changes and you get to see the identity of who is encouraging Elijah And it says, the angel of the Lord, and the Lord in your Bible should be all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the angel of the Lord, which is a reference to the angel of Yahweh, or the physical representation of God on earth, which is very likely Jesus showing up in the Old Testament to encourage Elijah himself. Verse 8, so he arose, before I move on, Anytime you see that phrase, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, and Lord is all capitalized like that, you're looking at very likely a Christophany, a Jesus showing up in physical form in the Old Testament. So he rose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 
of that food for 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. So after this encouragement from Jesus and this food, he travels for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai. This is the place where Moses was when God wrote the Ten Commandments on the tablets. And so you see a bit of a parallel in this pilgrimage to the place where the law was given, and he travels for 40 days and 40 nights, much like the Israelites traveled for 40 years in the desert. And he's here on Mount Sinai, the place where the law was given, and there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, In this parallel, as he travels to Mount Sinai, Moses, when he was up there, and God had written the Ten Commandments down on the tablets, he also asked God if he could see his face. And God said, no, you can't see my face and live. But he promised he would pass by and let Moses see his glory. And Moses was hidden in a cave. It's likely that this was even the same place. And in that same place, God is speaking to him. And he says, what are you doing here? So Elijah answers, he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. So he doesn't answer God's question. God's question is, what are you doing here? Elijah answered, why are you here? Elijah's afraid. And he thinks he's all alone, like he's the only person left who's willing to worship God. He thought that after that crazy victory, he would have won the hearts of some people, but instead it subsided and people still hate him and still don't follow God. And that's his excuse. I'm here because I'm afraid and I feel like I'm the only one left worshiping you. What else am I supposed to do? So then he said, God says to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So you see, These crazy things happen, and they actually mimic some of what happened when Moses was on Mount Sinai. There was fire and earthquakes and a strong wind and just this thing that terrified the Israelites so much that they didn't even want to be near the mountain. They went away from the base of the mountain because they were scared of God's presence. But this time, God's not in those things. So God is not in earth, wind, and fire. Just, that's a joke. Because you know the band? All right. Joke that needs explanation is not a good joke. But in the earthquake, in the fires, in the noise, in the big showy stuff, God's not there. And then there's just a whisper, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he gets the same question. 
God's asking him again because Elijah didn't answer him the first time. And Elijah's answer is, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken, uh, have forsaken, uh, I've been very zealous for the Lord of, Lord of the hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And he dodges the question again, and he says, I'm scared, and I'm the only one left who's worshiping you. And he doesn't answer what he's doing. He's saying, why I'm here. But he's not doing anything. He's just hiding, wishing his life could be over because he's scared. So the Lord said to him, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. And you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel, Maholah, and you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So God's response is, get out of the cave, do your job. (laughs) I have given you a ministry, go do it. And so he, he gives Elijah three jobs. He says, go anoint the next king of Syria, Israel's enemy. Go anoint the next king of Israel. And so predict who the next king of Israel will be. And then also anoint your replacement. Because there's going to be someone you're training to take your job over. And then God tells him, He's reserved 7,000 in Israel. And he's saying, you're not alone. There's 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed to Baal, who have followed me. Don't be afraid. This is one of the tricks of the enemy. To get us isolated, to make us feel like we're the only ones that can understand what we're going through, try to separate us from those who could uplift us and encourage us and help us have strength when we need encouragement. Instead, we get discouraged because we're cut off from everybody else because we think we're by ourselves. But we're not alone. While it, This is relevant to today because while the world seems like it's getting darker and darker, it seems that way because it is. But that doesn't mean that God is not still moving and that there's not a movement still and a mission that still needs to be done because there are still people who are coming to faith in Christ, and there's still work to be done. So it's time to get out of the cave. Verse 19. So Elijah, he departed from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yokes of oxen before him, and he was with the twelfth. Then Elijah passed him and threw his mantle on him, and then he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother, and then... I will follow you. Uh, And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered two of them, boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. So 
the first person Elijah sees is the person who's going to be replacing him. The person he's mentoring now is Elisha. And what he sees is Elisha is a farmer. And he's pretty wealthy. He's got a dozen set of oxen tilling the land. He's with the final set. And then Elijah just puts his cloak on him. And that's it. That's how he announces himself to Elisha. And Elisha's response is, let me go kiss my father and mother, and then I'm going to follow you. Now, that sounds very familiar to a story in the Gospels. But they're different in a very unique way. Because what Elisha did is he went and said goodbye to his mother and father. But then he sacrificed his oxen and burned the yoke, the farming equipment that was used, and gave it to the people and then went off to get go see Elijah. Now you're going, I'm going to go over the story. This is in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 57. It says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, meaning Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus is very much saying, you can say you're going to follow me, but you understand what you're in for. If you're following me, you're giving up all of your material concerns for the spiritual concerns because you're concerned with the kingdom of heaven, not your kingdom here on earth. And to another, he said, follow me. So he looked at another one of his disciples and he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So Jesus talks to this guy. He says, follow me. And he says, first, let me bury my father. Now, this is different from what happened with Elisha because this guy, he's been following Jesus. His dad isn't dead yet. But after hearing Jesus's concern about, hey, you're giving up your material possessions. You're giving up your material wealth because you're saying, I'm here to build the kingdom of God, not my kingdom. He says, wait a second, let me go deal with my responsibilities at home. And after I receive my inheritance, then I'll come and follow you. That's not good. That's not the same thing that Elisha did. But there's another person. Yet another one said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at home. Now this sounds a lot like what happened with Elisha. Let me go say goodbye to my, my family. But Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, the difference is, this guy isn't actually saying, let me say goodbye to my family. What he's really saying is, let me put my affairs in order to make sure things run smoothly while I'm gone. So that when I return, I can continue the work that I had before. That's very different from what Elisha did. Elisha didn't say, he said goodbye to his parents and he went off and followed Elijah but then he burned every opportunity he had to continue his, his work. He destroyed his, his uh, 
his oxen, his livestock, and then he also burned the yoke that they used to farm them. He said, he's basically saying, I am giving up what I have built here for myself to go serve God. And he goes and he follows Elijah and he gives up everything to follow him. That's very different. So just so you can get a difference of what, while this may sound familiar and it might even sound similar, like there's a contradiction, there's not. Because what Elisha did was he gave up his old life. He died to his old self to become what God has called him to do rather than what these guys were doing when Jesus was talking to them, which was trying to cling to their old life and have it as a backup plan. This is very reminiscent of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The body that you see is not I, but Christ living through me. It's what the baptism is about, celebrating the death to the old life and burying and crucifying ourselves with Christ and being resurrected as a new creation and having this new life and a new spirit to move forward with. And that's what Elisha did. Now we get into some really interesting stuff between Syria and Israel. And I hope that this makes sense as we go through it. Now, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. So we already know he's not going to be remaining the king of Syria forever because Hazael is going to be anointed by Elijah as he's on his way to do that. But right now, Ben-Hadad is king of Syria, and he's at war, and he is enemies with Ahab. So Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all of his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him, with horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. So he is, well, he is known for his cruelty and his prowess in war, and he is now surrounded the city of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he has got he, he's got Ahab under a barrel. He, he's, he's got him dead to rights. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab of Israel and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. So, this is what I want. These are the terms of agreement. You give me all of your silver and your gold and uh, all of the wives and children that you like the most. Those are mine. And the king of Israel answered, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. And he gives in to those demands. He caves. And he makes it really easy for Ben-Hadad. Then the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants. And it shall be that whatever is pleasant to your eyes, they will put it in their hands and take it. And so basically, he goes, well, if it was that easy to get your wives and your children and your gold and your silver, I'm going to take more. And so Ben-Hadad sends this to Ahab saying, if you're going to make it so easy for me, we're just taking everything. We are plundering you completely. So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble, for he sent for my wives, my children, my silver, and my gold, and I did not deny him. 
And all of the elders of the people said to him, do not listen or consent. And so here's the, there's a principle in this, right? Evil or sin, which are synonymous, it's always hungry for more. When you consent, when you give in, you give an inch, they take a mile, right? This is how, this is how it works. And so when you see, especially in political power, right, this guy, Ben-Hadad, he is evil, and he's seeking power, and he comes in and he asks for something, and he, you give it to him. Now, he asked for a mile, and Ahab gave him the whole mile. He said, sure, whatever you want, take it. He said, well, if you're going to give me a mile, I'm going to take 10. I'm going to take everything. Because when you give in, it will always ask for more. This is, it's the same with sin. If you think, I'm just going to do this one more time, and this will be it, it will not satisfy. Right? There's a reason that laced potato chips say, bet you can't eat just one. Or Pringles say, once you pop, you can't stop. Because once you give in to something even like gluttony, it's, you want more. Right, it's all—it's never satisfied. I know this is—that's one of my larger struggles with food. And so, when you give in, it will take more. And it, as I mentioned on on Saturday, with the my time working with people at Celebrate Recovery, this is their issue when they're dealing with addictions: is when you give in a little bit. There's no such thing as I'm only going to have a little bit, right? Like if you if you struggle with with alcohol abuse and you go to a wedding, and there's a little bit of champagne for you to toast with, don't partake. Because if you do, it will set you back every day. Because it never gives in. It always wants more. Sin is chasing after you. And it wants to take you by the reins and control you. And if you give in a little, it's going to take more. And So this is what's happening. This guy gets a little, and he says, I'm going to take more. So Ahab has now said, well, this is too much. I can't believe I consented with him. I, I met his demands, and now he's asking for more. And so now the elders are advising him, don't listen to him, don't consent. So therefore, he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord the king all that you sent for your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. So, he met the original list of demands, and he's still conceding that he will meet those. But he will not concede further. So then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. So Ben-Hadad's response was, You capitulated to what I asked for. You gave me the deal I absolutely asked for. And then when you said yes, I wanted more. Now you're saying no, and now I'm telling you that you'll be lucky if the people in Samaria have even a handful of dust because I'm coming after you. Because greed consumes. Evil and sin consume. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. Well, in modern vernacular, it's really, he's saying, don't count your chickens before they hatch. Like, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't bet on something that hasn't happened yet. And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message, and he said, 
and he and the kings were drinking at the command post, he said to his servants, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. Suddenly, now this is the moment, you know, you hear that word suddenly, and there's a, there's a shift in the narrative. Suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, thus says the Lord. Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So now God sends a prophet to Ahab as the city is surrounded, and he's saying, I'm going to protect you. This whole army, you're going to defeat them by the hand of God. So Ahab said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the the provinces. Then he said, who will set the battle in order? And he said, you. So a prophet comes to Ahab and says, God's going to take care of you. And Ahab's response is, who? Because he knows he's not on God's, you know, he's not on the nice list. He's on the naughty list. And uh, what? And God, prophet says, yeah, God's going to deliver you this army. So Ahab, sa- Ahab says, well, who's going who's gonna to organize this then? And prophet says, well, you. I'm telling, if it was someone else, wouldn't I be telling the general? I'm telling you. <laughs> You're the one who's in control. Do what God is telling you to do. So then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces, and there were 232. And after them, he mustered all of the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. So they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. The young leaders of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol. And they told him, saying, men are coming out of Samaria. So he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. If they have come out for war, take them alive. So now there's an army marching towards the enemy. And the enemy says, torture them. Take them alive because they're going to be my subjects. Then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them. And each one killed his man of the Syrians. uh, So the Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots, killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do, for in the spring of the year the king of Syria will come up against you. So they have won. They won this battle by shock and surprise. They came out on top. But the prophet tells Ahab, Be careful, because when the new year comes in in the spring, there's going to be another war. Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, therefore they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, surely they will be strong, surely we will be stronger than they. So this is the pagan mindset of God, they believed that whatever God you worshipped was stronger in the area in which they had control of. Now, this isn't necessarily anti-biblical either, because in the book of Daniel, we get this understanding that um, there are princes, like spiritual princes, over specific areas and territories, right? When uh, in Daniel, I think, it's either 9 or 11, where he's talking about the princes of 
of Greece and Persia. These are talking about spiritual powers over these areas that will come against Israel. And so there is, while there is some biblical element that lines up with this idea, these are not gods in the same sense that God is God. They are not uncreated, eternal, all-powerful beings. They may be spiritual forces. And so they have this grand idea that the God that they worship, or maybe the demon that they worship, has specific power in portions of the world. And so they're thinking the Israelites' God must have power in the high places. Which, by the way, would make sense as they were walking through the land because all of the idols and pagan temples that they built were all in high places. And so now they're saying, our gods will be more powerful in the valleys. So let's war in them in a place where our God will be more powerful than their God, and then we'll be victorious. If we're victorious in the spiritual realm, we'll win in the physical realm. That's their idea. Of course, this is the problem with spiritual beings or even this crazy idea because God is the God of all. The God of Israel, Yahweh, is the God of all. He is the uncreated eternal presence who created all and he's above all. And the book of Isaiah tells us there was none before him nor there will be none like him after. He is the one true only God. But this is their idea. This is their thought process. And so verse 24 says, So do this thing, dismiss the kings, each from his position, and put the captains in their places. <clears throat> and you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. Well, this is also bad military strategy. Because you want the high ground. But they're not planning on fighting on unlevel ground, they're trying to fight them in just the valley itself. And so he listened to their voice and did so. So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions and went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats while the Syrians filled the countryside. So what you're getting a picture of is the Israelites are gathered and they look like a kindergarten class fighting seniors. This is the idea here that you're getting because they are so small in numbers compared to the army of the Syrians. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel. So another prophet is here speaking to, the, to King Ahab and he says, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is the God of the hills, but he is not the God of the valleys. Therefore, I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So now this prophet comes and he says, They have mocked God. So Ahab, it has nothing to do with you, but because they've mocked God, God is going to give you this victory. Because God is the God of all. He's not just the God of the hills. He's the God of the hills and the valleys. And they encamped opposite each other for seven days. So it was that on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city. Then a wall fell on 70,000 of the men who were left. And Hadad fled and went into the city in an inner chamber. So this is funny. Well, kind of. The Israelites end up killing 100,000 men in a single day. And they were completely outnumbered. 
a bunch of them run away to a city to hide and they retreat. As they retreat to a city, a wall falls on them and kills them. That is just supernatural irony. (laughs) Yeah. Verse 31. Then his servant said to him, Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads, and we will go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they wore sackcloth around their waists and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant, Ben-Hadad, says, Please let me live. And he said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. Now, he wasn't actually his brother. Um, Now the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him, and they quickly grasped at at this word and said, Your brother, Ben-Hadad. So he said, Go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he had him come up into the chariot. So Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities which my father took from your father I will restore, and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Syria. Then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. So Ben-Hadad gets people to grovel for him. They go to go to King Ahab. Ahab hears that he's still alive and wants to make a treaty with him. And Ahab chomps at the bit. And he says, this guy, he's my brother. He looks up to Ben-Hadad because Ben-Hadad is well known in the region for being a brutal king with lots of wealth in a giant war machine, which represents a lot of power. And so in a way, he's probably a little bit starstruck. Like this is what he hopes to achieve as the ruler of Israel. And so he makes a treaty with him and he gains some cities back. He gets Damascus back. And so he gains wealth for himself and a treaty with the most powerful king in the region. And so now he's thinking, yeah, I'm doing a good job as a king. I've made my people wealthier and I've rescued them from their army. And made us wealthier in the process. Meanwhile, God's the one who did that, not Ahab. But Ahab is very eager to take credit for it and to do everything God told him not to do. Which you'll see now. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor by the word of the Lord, Strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. So now we got a prophet who's asking to be punched in the face. And uh, the guy says, I'm not going to punch you in the face. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. So, because he wouldn't punch a prophet in the face, a lion eats him. So, weird story. But, it is principled in that, like, do what God asks you to do. There are consequences for not doing what God has asked you to do. And he found another man and said to him, Strike me, please. Now this guy struck him, inflicting a wound. So the next person punched the prophet in the face hard enough to bruise him. So, which is apparently what God wanted. And now we're going to find out why. Because prophets were known for being kind of strange individuals, and they like to create scenes to make a point. And now we're going to see it. So now he's got a bruise on his face. And then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over over his eyes. So now he looks like a poor, broken, beaten man. That's the point. He's not going to be recognizable. 
Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out in the midst of battle, and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver, which is a giant amount of money. While your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Then the king of Israel said to him, Shall your judgment be you yourself have decided it? So, to put this in terms that make sense, he came up to him and looked like a man who was beaten and broken and was part of the, the battle. And he sees the king and he says, King, look, someone asked me to guard this guy. And then he told me that if I let him slip away, I'm going to die because I didn't do my job. And so King Ahab looks at him with zero mercy and he says, well, you let him get away, so you should die. And he hastened to take the bandage, so the prophet now takes the bandage away from his eyes and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. So now is the uh uh-oh moment where he realizes what's happening to him. Then he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I'm appointed who I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. So the prophet makes this scene and he says, I was supposed to guard this enemy and if I let him go, one of the generals told me that I would be killed because I let the enemy go. And the king says to him, well, you know what your punishment is then. You're going to die because you let, you let the enemy go. And then he reveals himself, and King Ahab goes, uh-oh, I made a mistake. And the prophet says to him, yeah, you know the story I just told you? You did that. You're the guy who let the enemy go. You let Ben-Hadad live, and you made a treaty with him. You did the opposite of what God told you to do. So that means... Your time as king is coming to an end because God is taking it from you. You're done. And after hearing this prophecy, now imagine this, right? Ahab, for really the first time in his reign, has actually had positive results from God. After this whole issue with Elijah, he has the king of Syria surrounding him. Twice, and he goes through two battles in which he gets victory because he follows God's plan. And then at the end, he ignores God's plan, he ignores God, and he makes a treaty with the enemy. And so what does he do? He goes home sullen and displeased and depressed, and he goes to Samaria. This is a great example of how no matter how far you are away, from God, God will still try to get your attention. And God will still try to work with you. God will still try to bring you into the fold, grant you grace, and grant you mercy. But Ahab turns his back on it. He turns his back on God. A spectacle has been displayed in front of Ahab. Elijah's victory, the death of the prophets of Baal, two victories over the Syrian army that outnumbered his people by enormous amounts. And he still will not cave, and he still will not bend the knee to God. And so now he's finally told, you're done. You have lost your chance. You have been given multiple chances 
complete spectacles of display of who God is and you refuse to worship him. So the tide is changing and the world is going to turn on you because you refuse to bend the knee. And this goes back to that same principle. Which kingdom are you trying to build? Yours or God's? Because if you're trying to build yours, you're not on his team. If you're trying to build his, you are on his team. But you have to be willing to sacrifice material things for the spiritual things. Because it's much better to walk on the golden streets of heaven than to have the next big screen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this evening. Um, Thank you for these lessons. And just the story of Elijah, the fact that someone so bold can also be brought to a place of despair. I think that's something we can all relate to. Moments where we feel really good about our faith or really good about our walk, and then we fail and we can go into a place of despair and wondering if you really hear us. But just like you brought Elijah out of that dark cave, you'll, you can bring us out of our dark places too. And for those who don't know you, God, I pray that you give them all the chances and all the opportunity like you did with Ahab. But I pray that unlike Ahab, they see you and they turn their hearts towards you and that you use us as vehicles to help make that happen. In Jesus' name, amen.